accepted uh, the Sermon on the Mount to be the high watermark of all ethical thinking ever, perfection itself. But a significant chunk of the material we encounter is difficult to make sense of and sometimes seemingly impossible to actually live. Indeed, the Sermon on the Mount has given Christianity, uh, in view of some skeptics, uh, the reputation of being a religion that espouses lofty but completely unlivable ideals. Um, For those uh, who are new to the Sermon on the Mount, a first reading might give them the impression that the disciples of Christ are never to get angry, never to experience sexual desire, unless perhaps, of course, to one's spouse, never to retaliate, never to divorce, never to own anything nice, never to know worry or anxiety, never to judge, never to doubt. Um, That's the impression it gives. And then there's that thing in the middle where Jesus says that imperative, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, in the words of, uh, I think, a Mac Davis song, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Uh, perfection, at least in our minds, perfection means to be utterly without flaw or fault. So it is unrealistic. In fact, it's the domain of comedy or insanity to imagine that we or anybody else we know might attain or be perfect. So then, in a sense, to the newcomer to this sermon, the whole thing sounds a bit rhetorical, like nice sentiment, but now... uh, Let's get back to reality. Um, And uh, as uh, will become evident, even to many of those who are deeply familiar with this sermon and who have studied it for a lifetime, even then we can come up with theologically sophisticated ways of saying the same thing. Such as, when Jesus says, blessed are the cheesemakers, he obviously wasn't wanting to be taken literally. Rather, he's referring to any manufacturers of dairy products in general. Um, Some of you might know where that reference comes from. My apologies to the rest. What does Jesus mean with this material? Or we could ask, what does Matthew, our author, mean by presenting it to us? What do they think they're doing? Well, actually, that is not a difficult question to answer if we know our Old Testaments. And this is because that was Matthew's target audience. He was a Jew who'd come to faith in Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah, and he's writing for fellow Jews, Jewish Christians, as we might say, And they did know their scriptures, the Old Testament, as we might say. They knew it backwards. They knew it very well indeed. So indeed, Matthew has a lot to say about Jesus, even from the very first words of his gospel, which in chapter 1, verse 1, the first four words are, Biblos genesios iesu Christu, a phrase that is correctly translated in the Pew Bible as a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but which is, translating it literally but woodenly, it is a book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. 
a phrase the Jews already knew from the Bible, from the Old Testament, from Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 4. A book of the Genesis of the heavens and the earth. So by starting his gospel in this way, Matthew is telling us that Jesus Christ is the new creation. And just as the Spirit hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, so too now the Spirit descends upon Jesus in bodily form like a hovering dove alighting on him. And just as the Holy Spirit, when he comes, makes all things new, Psalm 104 verse 30, so too the coming of Jesus is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because he will, Matthew tells us, through the voice of John the Baptist, baptize us not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus will fill his disciples with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who, like fire, cleanses from all impurities. Jesus is the new creation. And Jesus is also the new Moses. I I said a little something uh, about that last week, but um, it was Moses who, some 1,400 years earlier, led the little slave nation of Israel, the people who were called the Hebrews, up out of the land of Egypt, up out of the land of slavery, saving God's people into freedom. And that event was called the Exodus. And you can read all about it in an Old Testament book called Exodus. Well, since the start of his gospel, Matthew has been drawing, exciting, um, uh, provoking comparisons between Jesus and Moses. They both had very special births, Um, uh, really, really interesting births. And both of them, uh, when they were born, an evil pagan king tried to kill them. At Jesus' birth, an evil pagan king tried to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, and that, that was King Herod the Great. And so too, when Moses was born, Pharaoh tried to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. Like Moses, Jesus had to flee until, like Moses, those who had wanted them dead were, were themselves dead. And like Moses, God says about Jesus, out of Egypt I called my son. And then, as we, as we discussed last week, when Jesus ascended the mountainside in order to teach his disciples, the language directly brings to mind Moses, who ascended Mount Sinai in order to receive and deliver the law of Moses. So now we're expecting Jesus to deliver the new law. Or does he? Well, we'll find out. But either way, Jesus is the new Moses. And if Jesus is the new Moses, then this must be the long-promised new exodus. Now, we might think of Moses from our Christian perspective as being a lawgiver, as being the lawgiver. But Jews, from their perspective, thought about Moses as the redeemer, the deliverer, the one who brought them up out of slavery. What will Jesus do? Well, actually, an angel has already told us back in chapter 1, verse 21, speaking to Joseph about Mary, the angel said, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, a name which means the Lord saves, because he will save, in other words, redeem, deliver his people 
from their sins. Now, the angel didn't say he will save them from the punishment their sins deserve, although that is certainly true. Jesus did that for us on the cross. Yes, absolutely, the cross means that we are forgiven. He took the punishment. But more than that, no, Jesus is the new Moses, and this is the new Exodus in which Jesus will bring us up out of the land of slavery, saving us from sin. The word from in Greek means out of, separate from, removal. Jesus will save his people away from sin, separating them from sin, setting them free from sin. Not just forgiven, but now free. No longer a slave, no longer bound, no longer, to, uh, no longer unable to help themselves, no longer unable to resist. Jesus is the deliverer of a new exodus. And if this is the new creation and Jesus is the new Moses and this is the new exodus, then this must also be the new covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. Now, a covenant is, if you're not sure what the term means, it's a bit like a contract. It's a bit like a legal contract. Um, It's an agreement where two parties specify their obligations and behaviors towards each other. But unlike a legal contract, A covenant creates a new relationship. It creates relatedness. So then at a wedding, a wedding service being the time at which a marriage covenant is created, both parties specify and describe how they're obliged to treat each other by way of vows. But additionally, in the making of that covenant, in the public making of vows and in the exchange of rings, And in the private consummation of that covenant that night, the newlyweds become each other's closest living relative, one flesh. Suddenly, they are each other's next of kin. Now, God made a covenant with his people through Moses. He brought them up out of Egypt, saving them graciously. And they were saved by grace. It was not because they deserved to be saved. It was not because they were in any way especially impressive. Actually, it was because they were the smallest, the neediest, the least impressive of the nations. They were saved by grace. And suddenly, they belonged to each other. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was suddenly their God. I was a husband to them, God says. And they were his people. Now that they'd been saved, they would stay in God's good books if they obeyed the law that was given to them by Moses, a law that was detailed and lengthy, but that was also summarized well by Ten Commandments. If they obeyed, God would bless them. But if they disobeyed, there would be an ever-increasing escalation of consequences leading ultimately to their complete destruction if they were unrepentedly wicked. Luckily, the law of Moses was easy to keep, especially the Ten Commandments, dead easy. Rather than ten rules telling you what you had to do, it was just simply ten rules telling you what to avoid. And none of those banned things were especially nice anyway, so the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, was easy. 
Unfortunately, even though keeping the law of Moses was easy, the Israelites simply couldn't do it. They couldn't keep the law of Moses, not because the law was difficult or unattainable. They couldn't do it because they were sinful. They were evil. Um, And so, therefore, they moved through that list of ever-increasingly awful consequences, teetering at times dangerously close to complete extinction. But God himself announced the problem And he had a solution at hand. It was a new covenant. You see, the old covenant had been written on tablets of stone so that you read them with your eyes. But what was needed was for God to write them somehow on our hearts so that, in other words, keeping the law wasn't just easy from a practical point of view, an easy thing to do physically, but rather it was easy from what we might call a psychological point of view. Psychology being words about pasuke, the soul, words about the soul. Uh, From a soul point of view, we would keep the rules because we wanted to keep them, because uh, they were part of us, because we were born inclined to keep them, because we desired to keep them. We were not repulsed by the idea of keeping them. They weren't frightening or alien or troubling, but rather they were inherent to us delicious to the taste, satisfying to the soul. That was this great, wonderful solution. God announced this innovation through many prophets in various ways. He would pour out his spirit on all flesh, so Joel. He would give them a new heart and a new spirit, cleansing them from all impurity, so Ezekiel. But perhaps the clearest articulation of what we're talking about comes through the mouth of Jeremiah. I will make a new covenant with my people. It will not be like the old one. This is what I'll do. I will put my law in their heads and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No one will need to say, hey, you don't know what God likes because they'll all know me intimately, personally, all of them from the youngest to the oldest declares the Lord. So then, this is what Matthew is teaching us. This is what, as Peter might say, this is that. Jesus is the new creation. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the new Exodus. Jesus is the new covenant. And so then, back to the sermon, Jesus has his disciples. They know that he is the Messiah the long-promised king. In putting their faith in him, they are saved. Saved by grace. Now they're up on a hill, far away from the crowds, listening to Jesus tell them what it means now that they are saved. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, salt was a very valuable commodity in the ancient world. The salt that they had would be mined from the ground or scraped up from places like uh, the shore surrounding the Dead Sea. 
it was not very refined or purified like we know it today. But basically, what they called salt was dirt with a very high sodium chloride content. Sodium chloride being what we know as table salt. Its three primary uses were as flavoring for food, as a preservative for meat and fish, and also as a medicine. As a preservative, it allowed uh, fish and meats to be salted and cured, and then thereafter kept almost indefinitely fish or meat that otherwise would have been uh, inedible within hours. As medicine, the ancient, uh, the ancient Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans all rubbed salt into open wounds as a powerful antiseptic, killing germs and drying out the wound. We today have an expression to rub salt into the wound, uh, meaning to make a bad situation worse. That's what that proverb means in our mouths. But that idiom is based upon an understanding of just how excruciatingly painful it would have been to have salt rubbed in your wounds. Yet and nevertheless, as a very good antiseptic, undoubtedly rubbing salt in wounds saved many, many lives. In the Old Testament, salt uh, is used as a preservative and as a healing agent, but from an Old Testament perspective, those uses are the same, and the word is purifier. Uh, salt purified, in other words, stopped corruption of meat, sacrifices, um, even water holding back corruption. It was a purifying agent. Um, nevertheless, uh, the mixture of substances that they called salt, it was difficult to keep. Um, if it was kept in damp conditions, obviously sodium chloride sucks uh, water out of the atmosphere ferociously and therein salty water essentially would leach out of the container, leaving uh, you with a, a pile, in essence, of useless dirt. Um, it was impossible to make that salty again. The impossibility of it was proverbial. You cannot re-salt salt. If it's lost its saltiness, that's it. But it was actually worse than useless. It was toxic because of the other chemicals and other salts still within it. You couldn't put it on the garden. It would kill the plants. You couldn't put it in the manure heap. You'd render that a sterilizing agent, not a fertilizing agent. So it went where there would be no plants. It went on the paths where there weren't going to be any plants anyways. Thereafter, it was to be trampled on by people, literally, because it was toxic waste. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hidden, can, a town built on a hidden, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, the Messiah or the nation of Israel are frequently referred to as light or light to the Gentiles or light of the world. In saying to his disciples, you are the light of the world, Jesus marks them as the new Israel, the new Israel born by way of the new exodus into the new covenant. They are 
the true people of God, the true and only true people of God. With the coming of the new covenant, all previous ones are void, having been updated, as we might say, by a new version. These are extraordinary statements, absolutely astonishing statements about the purpose of the disciples. Uh, Jesus, for example, didn't say, hey, I want you to blend in. Don't make yourselves conspicuous. Don't stand out whatever you do. No, on the contrary, Jesus sees the totality of humanity as being divided into two separate categories, his disciples or the world. They are distinct and hopefully distinctly different. Jesus says, you and only you are the salt and the light. He is not saying, hey, my church is going to be a good influence. He's not going to say, he's not saying, hey, the church will be a beneficial institution. No, no, no. He's saying, my followers are the only good influence. The only influence for good. And that's astonishing. Um, As salt, Jesus sees us as being the preservative that stops the otherwise unavoidable rotting and putrefaction, corruption and decay that is otherwise inevitable for human society. This is one aspect. We are to stop decay. The other aspect, more positively, is medicine as an agent of healing. Now, when it comes to antiseptics in the ancient world, another really good one was honey. Uh, you can pour honey into open wounds. It's really, it's really a fabulous medicine. It, uh, kills germs, dries the wounds for much the same, same reason. Je- Jesus could have but didn't say, you are the honey of the earth. But we are not called to sweetness, but rather to saltiness. This is consistent with what we've already learned, that in living God's way and in speaking God's truth, we are not going to make ourselves popular. Persecution will result. We are definitely not called to rub salt in the wounds. Rather, incarnationally, we are called to be the salt that God rubs into wounds. No wonder we'll be tempted to hide under bowls. That, that's something. That's something. That's something. That's a sobering thought. But the purpose of the disciples is to be on display in order that the world might know what it looks like when people obey Christ. And what will it look like when people obey Christ? Well, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Uh, What Jesus is referring to as the law or the law uh, and the prophets is what we would call the Old Testament. Now, we know from all four Gospels that very early on in his public ministry, 
Jesus' behavior raised very serious questions in the minds of the religious authorities as to what his position exactly was on the law of Moses. He seemed at times to be a radical, an innovator, someone advocating abolition of the law, someone who, for example, healed on the Sabbath, breaking their rabbinic categories. Now, on the one hand, Jesus gives an absolutely crystal clear statement of his relationship with the Old Testament. On the other hand, he introduces a category that nobody was expecting. Um, what his audience would have been expecting was either, I have come to abolish the law and the prophets and to instigate a whole new covenant, a whole new approach, out with the old and in with the new. But he doesn't say that. Or he could have said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather I'm here today to tell you that I have come to wholeheartedly and unequivocally endorse them. But he does neither of that. He has come not to abolish, but to fulfill. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word fulfill just means that, to make full. Um, how does Jesus make full the Old Testament? Well, um, the way I think that Matthew's got most clearly in view is that he will fulfill the prophecies. That's a theme in Matthew. He, all of the prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. The Old Testament is a story. Jesus is the climax. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the substance to the symbol, the real thing seen only previously in shadow form. Jesus is the answer to the riddle of the Old Testament, the solution to every problem outlined in the Old Testament. But also Jesus is the exemplar of what the Old Testament requires, showing us what God requires. Jesus is the fulfillment also of all the laws, all the, especially the cultic or ceremonial laws, so as to make some of them apparently obsolete or abolished. But more truly, those laws are fully confirmed and satisfied in him. So then, the Old Testament stands as God's word for us today, just as it did for Israel under Moses. But with Jesus being the one who allows us uniquely to make right sense of it. Otherwise, without Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, otherwise, whenever it is read, there is a veil covering the eyes that cannot be withdrawn. Jesus continues, verse 19, Therefore, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, that reference to the Pharisees and the scribes, also known as teachers of the law, might confuse us. Um, we are used to them being portrayed, those guys in the New Testament, as being rather loveless, pitiless hypocrites, consumed with legalistic self-righteousness but without compassion and mercy. Um, that might be our association. It would not have been the association that Christ's Jewish audience had. 
or Matthew's Jewish readership had. No, the scribes and the Pharisees devoted themselves to a lifetime of studying the, studying the Bible and to obeying the law of Moses in all of its 600-plus commandments, statutes, prohibitions, requirements, and decrees. They studied it, and they tried to keep it with fanatical devotion. Your average Jew couldn't imagine getting anywhere close to them with respect to righteousness. They would have gasped when Jesus said this. They would have understood, oh, so no one is going to heaven. But as we'll discover as we progress through Christ's sermon, Jesus is not talking about a more fanatical or meticulous approach. Rather, he's talking precisely about the new covenant fruit of the Spirit that we thought about earlier, a qualitatively different approach, not about external conformity, but rather about a changed heart, a heart that has been changed by the love of God, filled with the love of Christ, a heart of flesh rather than of stone, born of the Spirit, born again. For no one enters the kingdom of heaven without being born again, to use John's phrase, born of the Spirit. And no one will enter the kingdom of heaven except that they have demonstrated the obedience that comes with having been filled in power with the Holy Spirit, that Spirit who purifies and cleanses like water, like fire. That Righteous obedience is a necessary condition of entry into the kingdom of heaven. doesn't mean that we earn our way in. It is the grace gift of the Spirit. Such obedience begins and ends with poverty of spirit. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Nevertheless, we now have an answer to the question posed at the beginning of this sermon. Is Jesus serious about us obeying this stuff? Oh, yeah. He's deadly serious. And we better believe that and bet our lives on it. Jesus is deadly serious about obedience. Indeed, he demands and requires from his disciples the most radical obedience imaginable that we obey the word of God from the heart. Therefore, the purpose of the law is to inform the purpose of the disciples, which is to show the world what it is like when people obey God through Jesus Christ, his Son. Lord, have mercy on us and write your law on our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Amen.